and came to a point when I said, look, I need to develop a clear Christian identity of my own, not based on Western evangelicalism, but the one that is true to the scriptures on the one hand and also takes serious my culture on the other. And I think when Christians in the majority world can begin to develop strong, confident identities of their own, and at the same time, Christians in the West realize that they got to back off from the colonial dominance that used to exist. Mm. I think we can move towards true mutuality. But that's going to be a hard process. It's not as simple as it is. Welcome to the Design Movement Podcast, where we have a passion to accelerate global mission together. I am your host, Jason Watson, and in today's episode, we interview Bishop Wai Yung, a leading figure in global Christian leadership and in the Malaysian church. Bishop Wai Yung invites us to explore the Book of Acts as a foundational text for the upcoming Seoul 2024 Congress and unpacks in detail its relevance for today's church. Today's interview is jam-packed with rich conversation. We are speaking about the Holy Spirit and revival, Christian identity, persecution, workplace mission, leadership as servanthood, and the gospel to the ends of the earth. If you are keen to hear more about how these key themes in the book of Acts intersect with our current cultural and missional moments, then this episode is for you. Let's jump into our interview with Bishop Wai Yung. Bishop Wai Yung, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jason. It's good to meet you for the first time. I hope that we'll be able to get to know each other better as the years go by. Thank you for welcoming me. Thank you. It's so great to have you with us today. In today's conversation, we're going to be exploring the Book of Acts and asking the question, what does the Book of Acts have to teach us as a global church today? But before we do a deep dive into Acts and the lessons it has for us as a global church, I'd love to give you an opportunity just to share a bit about yourself to our listeners. Can you share who you are, how you became involved in the Lausanne movement, and also what your role is regarding the Seoul 2024 gathering? I went for my theological studies in 1976. That was when I started, and it was a time when the theological world was very confused when it came to mission. And the Lausanne covenant was very, helped me greatly. It was very, it deeply impacted my theological pilgrimage as I moved, like, went ahead uh, in my studies. Then I was att attended the 1989, the second Lausanne Congress. Uh, that was my first personal connection with Lausanne. And subsequently, I attend some of the special interest study groups, like the one on spiritual warfare in Nairobi in, in the year 2000. For Cape Town 2010, I was part of the executive leadership team that planned the whole Congress. And I was also on the board of Lausanne for a few years. And I stepped down in 2014, but when it, for this, for the Seoul 2024, uh, the conference next year, the Korean Asia Host Committee asked me to come back on to help them to do some work. So I'm back on, on the committee and I'm part of the program committee for next year's conference. Thank you for sharing that with us, Bishop Wayun. It's really great to hear a bit of your journey. The other thing that you are involved in is looking into the book of Acts and setting the themes that we're going to be diving into in the right. soul gathering in 2024. I would love to hear what motivated you to focus on the book of Acts as a foundational text for the soul 2024 gathering. 
Well, it wasn't me who chose that book. Uh, it was uh, proposed by Dr. Patrick Fung, who is who chairs uh, the program committee. And of course, it was after we discussed it and uh, the committee agreed to use that book. And I was only asked to help to develop the whole part on the Bible exposition and the Bible engagement. But the X uh, part of um, it's our foundational text. And, and it's a foundational text for us in the sense that it's part of the New Testament. Mm. And therefore, what he says, of course, is foundational for us as Christians. But even more important uh, than that is the fact that X is the church in its formative years and was led by apostles who had the closest proximity to our Lord Jesus Christ. So in that sense, it becomes extremely important that we learn from them in terms of their concerns, their whole their value system, the way they look at things, and the, leader, the way they led the church. So that's why X is important for us in our, in, our, in our program. Before we dive too deeply into our discussions and to the themes of the book of Acts, I'd like to take a moment just to discuss the connection between the first century church, which is what the book of Acts is chronicling, and the 21st century church. Bishop Ayung, what lessons do you believe the book of Acts has for the 21st century church today? I think we live in different periods of history when the challenges are, and many of the external challenges are different. But I think the human person remains the same. God has put us in this world, but sin has wrecked it up, messed it up. And the challenge of bringing people to know God, to bring them to know uh, their purpose in life, all these issues remain the same. The spiritual issues remain fundamental and the same to us. So I think the point that we do have is this. And X tells us how the gospel went forth from the Christian community to the rest of the world. And I think that becomes, a, as I said, a foundational model for us. After all, the disciples, the apostles were the ones who was trained by the Lord himself. And what they teach us uh, is basically is what they have learned from the Lord himself. So in that sense, how they led the church, how they shaped the church, how they did church and mission continues to be foundational for us as well today. Thank you for setting that up for us. There are six themes that you pulled out from the book of Acts uh, that are significant for global missions. The first being that of the Holy Spirit. In what ways does the book of Acts emphasize the Holy Spirit's role in the mission of the church, especially when we begin to think about evangelization and the outworkings of the power of the Spirit of God. I think in the modern world today, like the way we, we do things in the modern world, everybody thinks that we, if we have enough education, enough resources, enough energy, enough planning, we can get on with mission. But, and you look over to the book of Acts, what the book of Acts reminds us is that our Lord Jesus reminds us that what is foundational to mission is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Without the coming of the Holy Spirit, without His empowering, there can be no mission. It is very clear in the, book, in the writings of Luke. For example, in the Gospel of Luke, towards the end of the chapter, just before Jesus departed, Luke chapter 24, verse 48, it's, Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in a city until you are clothed with power from on high. And all of us are familiar with Acts of the one verse, but you shall receive a power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. In other words, in Luke, they say, wait, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. In, uh, in Acts, they say, he says, don't do anything. 
when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you can begin mission. And I think we forget that this is always foundational. And I mm. think there's a tendency today in the modern world that we think mission can be done without the work of the Holy Spirit. As somebody has put it, he says, will the church be able to function if the Holy Spirit is absent? And the response he gave was, probably 90% of the church activities will go on whether mm. the Holy Spirit is present or not. And I think that is a danger. Um, and so the challenge for us is to go back to the book of Acts and say, so what is the X book of Acts telling us about mission? How do you believe the New Testament church's dependency upon the Holy Spirit and his power to do mission challenge our current approaches to church and mission? Evangelicalism I grew up in was very rational. I wouldn't use the word rationalistic, that would be too judgmental, but it was very rational and it was very moral, teaching us how to live our lives. But the whole supernatural dimension was underplayed. And I, as I read the Bible, I keep asking myself, how is it the Bible says so much about the supernatural, and yet the evangelicalism which I grew up in says so little about it. Mm. It's as if all you need to do in terms of apologetics is to sharpen your arguments, people will become Christians. It is how it's, if you learn to live a good life and you follow the rules, everything will be okay. But the whole spiritual dimension was actually missing. And so I had to wrestle with this question. And increasingly, because I found that within my own culture, if you don't understand the power of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to get anywhere in terms of ministry. Mm. And what has happened is that in the 20th century, the church has grown very fast in the majority world, whether it's Africa or Asia or Middle East or Latin America. And we all know that. And as they say, the center of gravity of the church has moved out of the Western church into the, you know, from the Western world into the majority world, somewhere around 1980. And if you look at the growth of the church, all these areas, something like if everywhere where it is grow, the work of the Holy Spirit has been emphasized. Something that was not taught to me when I was growing up as, as a Christian within the evangelicalism that I, I was growing up with. So increasingly, I have to go back and ask myself, what is the Bible teaching us? What is the Bible saying? What, what the Bible teaches about signs and wonders? How does that relate to us when we think of church and mission? I think that's a crucial question that except um, the one with uh, challenges. And the second thing you've identified in the book of Acts is the theme of missional community, particularly the idea of God's people being a new society. I would like for you just to take a moment to just share a bit of that theme with us. How does the book of Acts represent Christian community as a new society? And how does the life of this community then embody mission? When we look at the book of Acts, we find that although it's not explicitly stated in our modern terms, he was actually addressing a number of divides, uh, uh, divisions in our society. The generation generational division, the social, the cultural, the ethnic, all these were barriers in the early church as much as there are barriers today. And what we find in the book of Acts again and again that these barriers were being challenged. For example, right at the beginning when Peter was asked about the coming of the Holy Spirit, he quotes from Joel, he says, and he says, in the last day God says, I'll pour my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Now, that is a direct challenge to 
generational barrier that we face in most societies. It's sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men will see visions. Old men will see Everybody has a part in ministry. And you go on in the rest of the book of Acts, it tells about social barriers being broken. So for example, in the early church community, everybody's needs were being taken care of. The rich, those who had, who had more, contributed, and, those, and so that the, those who are less could benefit from it. Or even in the process of the distribution of the necessities of life, when there was a problem in Acts 6, and the widows were not being taken care of, because if you really look at it carefully, you find that it was the seven who were appointed were all Hellenistic Jewish Christians. In other words, although the leaders of the church were Hebrew Christians, that when they appointed people to take care of the needs of the poor, they looked at who were in need and they appointed people that those in need could trust, which are the Hellenistic, Christ, Hellenistic Christians. Mm. And so you find that that here we see a breakdown of the cultural barrier between the Hebrew-speaking Christians and the Hellenistic Christians. So you find that at every point again and again, the Jew-Gentile barrier was broken. And you, go, you find this especially, not only in the story of Cornelius, but you find that in the Council of Jerusalem, where the apostle says, look, we cannot allow food laws and old Jewish uh, circumcision laws to prevent Gentiles from being Christians. And that was what made possible, as some scholars have pointed out, the whole breakout of the gospel in the Gentile world. If they had maintained those barriers, from right from the beginning, the church was split into two, mm. the Jewish church and the Gentile church. But that, in God's grace, did not happen. Mm. So that is a challenge that the book of Acts puts to us all the time. It really is a challenge that, that we face as a global church. I mean, you've spent a fair share of your own time interacting with believers across the world. How do you believe the church today can proactively overcome our own barriers that we face as a 21st century church to authentically reflect this kind of gospel community? I think that's a too big a question to answer in, a, in two or three minutes. I was reduce my answer to two things. One, I would simply say that I think every church in whatever locality or context we are in, we have to look at what are the barriers that prevent us from a united church. And there, every one of us is called to work at putting into practice what Jesus says in John's gospel, chapter 13, verse 34, 35, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one another. In other words, what he's saying is that if we begin to live as a Christian community, when people look at us, they see who we are, they see the reality of God in our midst. In other words, the Christian community itself is mission. Mm. As Michael Green, in the first Lausanne Congress in his paper, said, when the outsiders look at the church, they saw two things. They saw transformed lives, they saw how they love one another and many were drawn to the church as a result. And I think that's the first challenge that we have to do. Every one of us must live according, every one of our churches, wherever we are, must learn to live accordingly. The second big challenge, I think, in a global context today is that I think there's a long divide where between the West and what is now the non-Western or what is now called the majority world, the gospel 
in the modern period came from the West into the majority world. But the West also, because it brought the gospel, there was a strong dominance and consequently, there's a tendency for that dominance to continue to, be, to, to pers persist. So I think there's a big divide today, even today, between the West and the non-Western world. For example, in the West, you have the institutions, you have the influence, you have the PhDs, you have the institutions, you have the money especially. Many of these resources are not found in the non-Western world or the majority world. I think the big question is, how then do we get the two churches to come together in genuine mutuality and partnership? I think that is one of the biggest challenges. If we can overcome that, can will be a beautiful way to demonstrate our our oneness, our community in Christ. I'd be curious to hear from you, Bishop Ayung. Do you have any thoughts about how the church could do that to bring those two divides together? I will share with you briefly what I myself have tried to do. My biggest problem as I was growing up as a Christian was I grew up in a Methodist church where uh, the dominant church was in Britain and America as I was growing up, right? I grew up, I went to university overseas and I studied under, uh, stu studied in the West. And then at a seminary, I studied under people like J.I. Packer and Colin Brown. And so there's a natural tendency for us to feel that somehow the West is much more superior. Somehow the West is dominant. And yet at the same time, I was finding that what they were, I was learning from them was not addressing some issue. Like how do I deal with the demonic? How do I deal with the supernatural in my culture? I wasn't taught those things. And it took me a few years of still working through the Bible and working, studying the Bible carefully and reading church history and so on. And came to the point when I said, look, I need to develop a clear Christian identity of my own not based on Western evangelicalism, but a one that is true to the scriptures on the one hand and also takes serious my culture on the other. And I think when Christians in the majority world can begin to develop strong, confident identities of their own, and at the same time, Christians in the West realize that they got to back off from the pre- uh, the colonial dominance that used to exist. Mm. I think we can move towards true mutuality. But that's going to be a hard process. It's not as simple as it is. Thank you for those thought-provoking ideas. Another major theme that you're exploring in the book of Acts is the theme of the persecuted church, and particularly the persecution of the early church. But persecution is still a lived reality for many Christians today. How does the book of Acts and other New Testament scriptures portray persecution? And how does this redefine the contemporary understanding of it? I think the tendency with most of our churches is that we tend to look at those who are persecuted as people to be pitied. And we need to do what we can to help them. And we pray for them especially. Uh, it seems to be a it gives a rather negative view of towards persecution as a Christian thing about persecution. But you don't get the same way of looking at persecution in the book of Acts or in the New Testament. Uh, in the New Testament or the book of Acts, they just assume the persecution was something that you accept. After all, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But I've overcome the world. 
A second link to this problem, of course, is the fact that modern church, especially coming from the West, is come from what you call going from the center, the cultural centers, the financial centers, the intellectual centers, right? To the margins a century ago, for example, much of the majority was still in the margins economically, intellectually, culturally, not culturally, economically, etc. So what you then have is that we often think if I come from a center and I go to the margins, I'm a strong and dominant person. Why should I face persecution? So we always come with that mentality that as people coming from the center, we should not persecute it. And we forget that, we forget that Jesus reminds us that if you follow him, you're called to pick up the cross. Mm -hmm. But we live in a world where we emphasize success mentality, prosperity, gospel. What can Jesus do for me? And so we feel that we look at persecution in a very totally different way. But when you go to the book of Acts, they just accepted persecution as a fact, a given. And instead of saying that, oh, we should find a way to get, overcome this persecution, they simply just accepted it. Uh, they persevered in it. They prayed through it. And they went forth in bonus. And what they found was that the persecution never stopped the growth of the church. Mm. In fact, as you read the book of Acts, it says, for example, when Paul persecuted the church, the church scattered. And in the process of scattering, the church actually went and preached the gospel. So it's a completely different way of looking at a church, uh, at, the, at persecution. And I think we need to rethink how we handle persecution. Mm. And I think that idea of how we handle persecution also filters into the fourth theme that you have in the book of Acts, which is Christian mission in the workplace. And, and how the early church had this boldness about taking their Christian identity and living that out into every sphere of their lives, including the workplace. How does the book of Acts and the New Testament writings underscore the importance of witnessing for Christ in daily life, especially in the workplace as an essential part of their mission? Well, it's interesting. When you look at the book of Acts, you don't naturally think of it talking about evangelism in the workplace. But when you look Underneath the surface, actually, it's all there. For example, Paul, the great missionary, and we all think of him as the great missionary, like the modern missionaries. But Paul was never a full-time missionary. Mm. And most of, us, most of us forget that. In fact, according to the rules, of, the rules of life for a Jewish rabbi, up until the Middle Ages, right, you're talking about a second century, a second millennium, up until the second millennium, by the Middle Ages, every rabbi had to have a trade. Whether it's a doctor or whether it's a baker, or, they were never full-time rabbis. And that was Paul. And Paul's trade was being a tent maker. Okay, uh, whatever that meant. Okay, so Paul was actually using a lot of that, of a lot of his work in the workplace, was doing a lot of evangelism in the workplace in that sense. If you think of a person, people like Aquila and Priscilla, yeah, it doesn't say a lot about what they did. But you find that their home, their homes, their home was always open. You read the New Testament, you find that their home, people met in their home. And in my experience, the home is one of the most powerful tools for evangelism. Mm. When people come to our homes, I went to a university, we had an overseas student group, and that group met at a couple's home. And that couple had opened their home for over a period of something like 20 to 30 years, every weekend. People, the overseas students will come and meet their home. 
And over that period, many people were Christians. You see that in the story of Aquila and Priscilla. And then you see the story of Dorcas. It describes him full of good works and acts of charity. Now that one, you don't need to be a pastor. You don't need to be a senior pastor of a mega church to do that. Everyone can do it. So in other words, workplace evangelism was something that came naturally. The point was this, that the New Testament just assumed that the, news, that the gospel was good news. And when the gospel is good news, you go out and share the good news. It's like the Sri Lankan Christian, Diti Nau, who once said, evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to get food. Wow. And I think that's exactly what happened. So people found the good news. People heard the gospel, heard the salvation in Christ. They just share it like wildfire. I've just finished working a book about a revival in a certain part of Malaysia. And I met some of the people who were involved in this. They said, look, when the revival came, we just went, we didn't, nobody told us, right? but we just went in the weekends. When we were at college, we went the weekends to preach in the villages. And we just wanted to do it. And that's what happened. So I think ex-apostles are telling us, us to rethink about how we do evangelism. Are we always depending on the full-time paid personnel? Or is it everybody's job? So how do we do evangelism today? I think we just treat it, they do it the way that the New Testament churches do. Don't depend on the mega church pastor. Don't depend on people like you and me who are full-time professionals working in a Christian organization. If everybody does their part, I think the gospel will go forth. And that's what happens again and again at revivals. As I say, I talked to people who was working on this book on revival and these people whom I talked to, they said, we're just so excited. We just want to do it. Nobody told us to do it, but we just went and do it because we were so caught up in the excitement of it. This is still happening in many parts of the majority world where the gospel has come in a fresh way. But I think in many parts of the West, the gospel has become a bit stale, a bit worn. Mm -hmm. And I think that sort of excitement is no longer there in many parts. And also, but it doesn't only apply to the West, it also applies to many of the urban churches in my country, in the majority world. People have become Christians, they get used to it, and they forget about it. Mm -hmm. But wherever there has been, the church has been caught up in the revivals, you find that they have a totally different attitude about evangelism. You don't need to tell them, to do evangelism. They will automatically do it. So I think that's what we need to recover. The work of God, allow God to come, the work of God to come in our life, to transform us, to challenge us, and to really send us up. Bishop Wai-Yung, thank you for that reframe. I love the idea of the integration of our faith and our life system, that breaking down of the sacred and the secular divide. The next theme that we are going to be discussing is this idea of leadership as servanthood. How does the book of Acts in the New Testament text re-envision leadership from a servanthood perspective? Jason, you know that you go anywhere in the global church today, every talk, everybody talks about training leaders and having CEO, churches as CEOs. But I'd ask people, I'd say, can you find me one verse in the Bible which talks about training leaders? And they scramble over the Bible, they cannot find one. Then I say, can you find me a verse in the Bible which talks about a pastor as a CEO in the church? And then they scramble all over the Bible and they cannot find one. And I think this is a fundamental problem facing the church today. I think there's a leadership crisis 
in the whole Christian world, as well as in the world. And with top flight leaders failing and few leaders being able to command real respect across the board. What is interesting is that when you go to the book of Acts, there's no reference of CEOs. There's no talking about training leaders. But there's a constant theme about how do you, when you're in a position of leadership, learn to live your life as a servant? Acts chapter 20, Paul's, Paul's message to the efficient elders is the best example there. And there he keeps talking about, and for example, he talks, he says, he talks about serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. How many of us in leadership can honestly say that's how we do our leadership? I don't find many of that here. I find that I would put the challenge in my life, in my own life. Am I, like Paul, we can say, I serve the Lord with humility and with tears. And, and when, when you get leaders in the church doing that, I think you get true leadership because they are there seeking to do what God calls them to do. They care for the sheep as pastors generally care for them. The other example I want to give is the story of Barnabas that comes in Paul. I think Barnabas is the one person whose, whose, whose role is underplayed. Barnabas is the one who, without, but no, when nobody wants to touch Paul, Barnabas was the one who called Paul. When people needed, when they needed help in the church of, um, in the church of Antioch, he went all the way to pull Paul and say, Paul, you come here and help us. When the missionaries sent out, it was Barnabas who was in the leadership. But after a little while, it was Paul who was in the leadership. And after a little while, Barnabas disappears from the scene. And we forget that without a Barnabas, there would never have been a Paul. Mm. And yet everybody talks about Paul, but nobody talks about Barnabas. And that's why the Bible calls him the son of encouragement. And I think we need to know leadership in that sense. How can we choose servants? How can we begin to serve others? How can we help others grow? I find that a constant challenge in my own life. Mm. I think there's too much talk about leadership and too much of emphasis on training leaders and talking about leadership actually encourages ambition and self-seeking. I think many writers have pointed that out, but we just ignore them. I think we need to recover the theme of servanthood. And I think the book of X challenges to it. I think you're so right. There is this influence on the global church to adopt these corporate leadership models. How can the global church recalibrate in its understanding and the application of leadership to align with this biblical model of servanthood? I think there's a place to train people in leadership skills. You and I need to know how to chair a meeting. You and I need to know how to plan. You and I need to know how to help people grow. These are leadership skills. But I think, unfortunately, when we teach people leadership skills, we also say that, therefore, you can become a leader that way. I don't know whether you know the term Bishop Stephen Neal. He said, we train a person to be a leader increasingly, you become, all you do is encourage ambition. And I still remember he was in his 70s when he came and spoke to, to, to us in the seminary. He said, the seminary's task is not to train a leader, to train leaders. The seminary's task is to train godly men and women. And if God should give the gift of leadership to a godly man and woman, the whole church will benefit. 
But by the typical British, he did not say the other side. Yeah, the godly, ungodly men or ungodly women takes over leadership. Everybody suffers. But the typical, the British is so polite in the way they talk. You have mentioned five themes so far. The Holy Spirit's missional community, persecuted church, workplace of the mission, and leadership as servanthood. Last up, we have the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, evangelical churches and missions organizations often stress, you know, Christ's mandate to evangelize to the ends of the earth. In your view, what differentiates the early church's approach to this task from how we as a global church often approach this task? If I may be a little bit direct here, I would say this. The church of the world, the evangelization of the world is a huge task. It is mission possible, given the fact that we are all limited. The problem, unfortunately, with the modern day church is that we forget that. And so we had plans, we can develop strategies to evangelize the whole world in our generation, in our time. You think about the 2000 world plans drawn up to evangelize the world, complete evangelizing the world before AD 2000. Many of us are aware of in, in the Edinburgh 1910 conference at the world, first major world missions conference, the theme was the evangelization of the world in our generation. I think that's the way that modern men thinks about it. Modern men and women thinks about it. The ex-apostles uh, approach the whole thing in a completely different way. Don't try to put your human plans together. The first thing you have to do is to wait, as Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Secondly, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, listen to what he's saying. So Paul goes on a vision journey. He wants to go to Asia. And the Holy Spirit says, don't go to Asia, go to Macedonia instead. We need to learn to listen. So we've got to wait and we've got to listen. And then thirdly, we need to say, okay, when the Holy Spirit tells us to do it, how do we do it? Do we depend on our human resources, our money, our expertise, our training, our institutions, our mission hospitals? Or do we say, let's see what the Holy Spirit tells us to do? And you read the story of revivals again and again. Millions have been brought to Christ without money, without hospitals, without missionaries. When everything has been taken away, only, like, only when we tap that, only our God. And that's what happened. And one of the best stories I tell is the story of the church in China. Before the Second World War, the Western missions brought funds of money, built the best universities, the best hospitals, the best orphanages. Orphanages, the best schools, thousands of missionaries were working there, but the church was only growing marginally. And John Sung, the greatest evangelist China's, China produced in the first half of the 20th century, told the church, he says, God has told him that he's going to bring a great revival to China. But first, all the missionaries must leave. This was 1940. Who had believed John Sung? And yet that was exactly what happened. He died in 1944. The communists took over the country in 1949. By 51 or 52, every mission had to leave. Everything was taken away. The money, the churches, the buildings, the universe, everything. Churches were closed down. Pastors and leaders were thrown into jail. Nothing was left. And without anything but God, the revival came. Wow. But it's not just mm. in China. You can read the same story in many places. And I think that's the difference between modern world. We, the modern 
church kinds of thing that oh when we use our resources our training our money etc we can plan to build God's church mm. but the X says look you depend on the Holy Spirit wait for him listen to the instructions see what he's going to do and work with him I think that's a fundamental difference Wow, Bishop Young, you've really um, given us some thought-provoking ideas to, to meditate on and to grapple with. And I think you've done an excellent job trying to synthesize six major themes in the book of Acts for us in such a short period of time. We're going to begin wrapping up this podcast interview. And as we do, I would love to hear, are there any final thoughts or insights you would like to impart with our listeners? Our time is limited, so I only say one thing. Can all of us come the content. After we look at the book of Acts, study, read, and meditate on the book of Acts without our prejudices, without the prejudices of our theological up- upbringing information. I don't know whether you come from a Wesleyan tradition or a Pentecostal tradition or a Reformed tradition or whatever tradition. Take away all these things and read the Bible for yourself. Take away our theological biases. Take away our cultural assumptions and read the book of Acts. What does the book of Acts say? Yes today and can we leave it all mm. and I think you transform the way we live and how we do church function that's my plea mm. as we wrap up this interview I'd love to give you a moment just to share what are your hopes and prayers for Soul 2024 two things I hope that it, my prayer is that Soul um, will do two things for us one is that you allow you really go back to the Bible and allow the message of the Bible to change, challenge and change the way we do church and mission. We evangelical, evangelicals claim that we believe in the Bible, but a lot of times our, our, we are not very biblical. I will give examples, but I don't want to seem to be criticizing different groups, theological groups today, so I better not say anything. You, you get me not. But we really need to go back to the Bible and say, what does that Bible actually say? So my hope, first and foremost, let's go back to the Bible and see what it's, got, it's saying to us. And the second challenge is this, that Seoul 2024 will really ask you an era where there's true partnership across the globe. Mission is no longer from the West to the rest. Mission today is from everywhere to everywhere. How can true partnership emerge across the continents, across the denominations, across the different groups, across the rich, between the rich and the poor? We need to build true partnership. Only that and gospel move forward effectively. Those wow. are my two hopes. Wow, Bishop Yung, I'd like to extend my heartfelt thanks to you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for your time. Your wisdom and insights have given us a lot to think about as we navigate the complexities of modern missions and as we look forward to Seoul 2024 and even beyond that. Thank you for taking the time to share your expertise, your vision with us and our listeners. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to share with you and with everybody. Thank you, Jason, for your hard work and good work. Blessings on you. Well, I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Bishop Wai Yung. If you're anything like me, you're keen to dive into the Book of Acts as we consider what Acts means for us in this current cultural and missional moment. Well, I'm really excited to announce that in the coming weeks, we are shifting gears here at the Luzon Movement podcast as we begin to unpack in detail Luzon's State of the Great Commission Report, pioneered by Dr. Matthew Nieman. The State of the Great Commission Report explored shifts that are happening across the globe today. Shifts that have to do with Christianity, hope, and trust. 
We're looking at demographics across the world and community stats about injustice, sustainability, understanding our human identity and shifts in technology. Over the coming weeks, we're going to be exploring these shifts with Dr. Matthew Newman, as well as bringing in experts, thought leaders, practitioners who are bringing Christ into these areas within our societies. Here is a clip from an interview with Dr. Matthew Newman. Key part of catalyzing collaboration towards this intentional, strategic Great Commission effort is really knowing the current status of the Great Commission and the dynamics of our ever-changing world. So really with this collaboration in mind and action in mind, Lausanne is producing the State of the Great Commission report. This report's really bringing together the best global data and key strategic thinkers to understand really where the greatest gaps are and where the fundamental opportunities are for the Great Commission's fulfillment. So this is the vision of the State of the Great Commission report, to prepare us for collaborative action and to do it strategically. Well, I hope that you enjoyed today's interviews. If you haven't yet, please take a moment to rate and review our podcast. Until next week, cheers. Cheers.